Good morning. Please open your Bibles with me to 1 Peter chapter 5. First Peter chapter 5, as we begin to wind down and draw our study of First Peter to a close, in our most recent sermons, uh, the theme was humility, humility towards one another, and then humility towards God as we humble ourselves under his mighty hand. And now, in verses 8 through 10 of First Peter 5, Peter prepares us for battle. All throughout 1 Peter, the idea, uh, idea isn't the best word, but the, the, the manner of presentation, the truth, is that we as, as believers, we as Christians are on a pilgrimage going from this world to the next. And this is the time in between. You have been born again to a glorious incorruptible inheritance. Peter begins his epistle by describing it, uh, de- describing us but we have not yet gotten there. Uh, We have not yet entered into this glorious inheritance. We've been born again for it. We are guarded for it, and it is guarded for us, but we're in the in-between. And we need to understand while we're in the in-between that God is at work for our good. His mighty hand at times sends or permits afflictions, and so we humble ourselves, understanding that God is at work for our good. But 1 Peter 5 8 through 10 reminds us that there is one who is at work not for our good. And we must prepare for battle because the road ahead is not clear. The road ahead has enemies, adversaries, and opposition and obstacles in it. So let's read our text, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 through 10. This is the word of God. Be sober-minded, be watchful, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. This is the third time that Peter has commanded Christians to be sober-minded. Verse 8 says, be sober-minded. And he said this in chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Peter in verse chapter 1 verse 13 says look to the future and be sober minded. Chapter 4 and verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore be self-controlled and sober minded. Look to the future, the end of all things and be sober minded. Well here also in 1 Peter 5 verse 8 for the third time Peter reminds us of the necessity of sober mindedness in light of the certainty of the end of all things, even if the timing is unknown to us. Satan wants to prevent us from making it to the end. And we must be sober-minded because we can't sit back and relax. When you go to Disneyland or Knott's Berry Farm or someplace like that, and you sit on the attractions, 
your job is to just sit there and be entertained. That's not what the Christian life is like. Just sit there and be entertained. Rather, if there were people at Disneyland constantly trying to pull you out of the ride as you went along them, that would be more like the Christian life. Peter says, be sober-minded. Be aware, be awake, and be wise. So we're going to study our enemy. We're going to spend, currently the plan is, three sermons to better understand our enemy, which is a necessary component in war and in battle, is knowing your enemy. Any successful military campaign requires this kind of knowledge. And as Christians, we may hear the name Satan or devil uh, commonly throughout the teaching of the church or just the common discourse of Christians, but do we know what we're actually talking about? Or is it merely a name? And then, of course, art and culture and history present all kinds of images and ideas to our minds that infiltrate our thinking, whether we are aware of it or not. There is a great deal of misinformation and misunderstanding when it comes to our enemy, the devil. And so in order to obey Peter's commands to be sober-minded, to be watchful, to resist, in order to do this well, we need to spend some time understanding the war that faces us and the enemy within it. And so the big picture outline of these sermons will go like this. This is not the outline of this particular sermon, but several sermons would be Satan's life, that's this sermon, and then Satan's leash, and then Satan's loss. Those will be subsequent sermons, beginning with Satan's life. So if you want a title for this sermon, and I don't like doing sermon titles, but I have to every time I upload them to Sermon Audio, this would be Satan's life. What and who Satan is so that we can better resist him. So the actual uh, structure of this sermon will have four points. Four points. And we're going to see that if your idea of Satan is the eternal struggle between good and evil, you're wrong. Because that, that kind of dualism has good and evil right here on par, and they just sort of go back and forth in an eternal circle and cycle of you win, I win, something like that. That's not the reality, not at all, because Satan is a created being, and God is God. Four points in our outline. First of all, number one, his nature. What is Satan? Well, Satan is a created spirit. Satan is a created spirit, or what we might more commonly call an angel. And because Satan is an angel, we can consider more generally the nature of angels. And we need to remember that the term or title angel is really a description of function, a messenger. The name angel doesn't really tell you what they are so much as what they do. Angels announce, they speak on behalf of, they carry out the will of another. But the nature of an angel is a created spirit. And we see this in passages such as Psalm 104, verse 4, which says, speaking of angels, he makes his messengers winds, his ministers a flaming fire. And so God's messengers or God's angels are described in terms of winds, and in terms of flaming fire, all of which are appropriate metaphors because angels are part of the invisible world. God created all things 
the visible and invisible world, and angels are part of the invisible world, and so wind and fire make sense. Wind, because you can't see it, and yet it's felt. It has a real presence and power. It has a force. Wind moves you, and yet you cannot see it or grasp it. Similarly, fire. Fire, yes, can be seen. It has a glory to it. It has a dazzling brilliance. People love to stare at fires because they're beautiful. But if I say, now, grasp the fire in your hands, you can't. It, it, it can burn you. You can feel the, the heat and power of it, but you, you cannot physically interact in terms of, of taking it and containing it and, and carrying it in your hands. And so angels are created spirits. They are like the wind, invisible, but there. Like fire, glorious and brilliant, but in, intangible. They are the ministers and messengers of God, created spirits who fulfill his will. When were they created? Well, Genesis 1 doesn't tell us exactly, though it is very, very probably before man, and I would say probably on the first day when the spiritual realm is created. But with regard to office, they are messengers and ministers. With regard to nature, they are created spirits. Now, why did God create angels? We have... Uh, a clearer view of this from Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 14, which says this, Are they angels? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? So the angels are sent to minister to or to serve the good of the elect, the good of God's people. And this verse has a post-fall perspective but the truth of it remains, angels serve God by serving men. Angels serve God by serving God's people. That's a very important foundational idea to this sermon. Angels serve God by serving men. Now we need to understand the relationship between men and angels by considering God's creation of man and God's purpose for man to understand what the angel's role is more fully. So God created man, body, and soul, and God created man to have dominion over God's works. This means that men have an inferior nature to angels, but we have a superior glory and calling and dominion. God has made us lower than the angels, but he has called man to a glory and dominion higher than the angels. And we see this in Psalm 8. I'd like you to turn there with me. It's not just one verse. Turn to Psalm 8. Verses 3 through 6. Words that you've, you've read or heard many times before. Psalm 8, 3 through 6. When I look at your heavens... The work of your fingers, the moon, and the stars which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and yet crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Notice the enigma of Psalm 8. That man has an inferior nature to angels. In, in the created order, man does not rank very high, in a sense. Angels are above man in the created order of being. 
And yet, in terms of dominion and glory and honor, man is elevated above the angels. And all things are subjected to man, not subjected to angels. So God made Adam innocent, upright, and just. And Adam was able to ascend to a greater glory because although he was innocent, his nature was, he was, in his nature, he was capable of falling from that righteousness as he did. And so what God offered Adam in the covenant of works was to have a glorified or perfected nature that could not fall and to therefore exercise dominion over all things as God's perfect servant. Man is made lower than the angels, but called to a higher glory and dominion than the angels. And because the angels are created to be ministers and messengers of God for the sake of man, it is therefore the duty of angels to help man to achieve this dominion and this destiny. The angels were created to serve God by serving us and to fulfill God's will for man by helping us to obtain it and achieve it. So I ask you, were the angels faithful? Were they faithful? This brings us in the second place to his history. Satan's history. If angels were created for the purpose of bringing man to the glory to which God called man, it was precisely this that led to their downfall. Because rather than caring for man and obeying God and serving God by serving us, Satan and other of the angels sought their own glory and rebelled against God's will. Instead of helping us to reach the glory of God, Satan tempted man, deceived man, and dragged him down to the depths of wickedness to which he himself had fallen. And because of this, God cursed Satan and all those who followed him with an irreversible, undoable uh, sentence of judgment. And many of them are already imprisoned in what's called Tartarus, or the deepest pit and oubliette of hell. There are scriptures that recount this history. This is not a myth. This is not legend. This is not tradition. So I'd like you to please turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 28. You might think, well, of course, Genesis 3 recounts this, and it does. But the scriptures speak of it in more detail than perhaps you have previously known. Ezekiel chapter 28. And as you're turning there, let, let me remind you of the way in which the prophets often communicate. By the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the words that the prophets write on the paper can often refer to multiple things at the same time. One sentence, one word, or one, one paragraph, one, one body of text that's, just, that's hitting multiple things at the same time by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And one of the things that the prophets do is they describe the enemies and the oppressors of God's people, which are world powers and world rulers, and they're truly describing those world powers and world rulers who are the enemies and oppressors of Israel and God's people. But at the same time, they are also describing Satan and his minions who oppress and deceive and accuse God's people. And so we're going to read in Ezekiel 28 a description of the king of Tyre, uh, but it's also a description of Satan himself. Let's read verses 11 through 19. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre, and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, 
the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle. And crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God in the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. By the multitude of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. So I brought fire out from your midst. It consumed you, and I turned you to ashes on the earth in the sight of all who saw you. All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have come to a dreadful end and shall be no more forever. Here we see not just the nature of Satan as a guardian cherub, but also the history of Satan. And this may adjust the way that you think about Genesis 3 to some degree. Why was Satan in Eden? Because that's where angels are supposed to be. (laughs) It's the sanctuary of God, and they're ministers to man. And Satan was innocent initially, a guardian cherub in God's temple on earth, Eden itself. But what happened? Verse 17, pride. Pride was the downfall of Satan and other angels. In other words, it was an inward and then downward fall. He loved himself, his own beauty, his own wisdom, and he sought his own glory, an inward and downward fall towards himself, which is the essence of pride, love of self, seeking one's own glory and doing one's own will. And in his pride... Satan chose to seek glory for himself by stealing man's loyalty. Rather than serving God by serving man and helping man to arrive at the glory to which God had called him, Satan said, no, I will elevate myself, I will exalt myself, and you shall serve me. You shall make me glorious, you shall make me powerful. Man will be my servant rather than that I should be man's minister and servant. And what was God's curse? Verse 17, I cast you to the ground, you snake. Verse 19, all who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. This helps us to better understand why Satan was in Eden and what he was doing when he tempted Adam and Eve. It also, I would say very likely, but it's not a hill that I would die on, means that what Adam and Eve saw in the garden was not a snake, so much as a shining angel who did snakely things, who deceived and slithered, and God curses him in snake-like terms. I cast you to the ground. You who sought the highest place are now the lowest of the low. But whether they saw him in the form of a snake or in the more glorious form of an angel, it doesn't change the reality of what he did. He was supposed to be there as a guardian cherub, a ministering spirit in God's sanctuary. He knew the law of the garden, and he was supposed to help man to keep it and to arrive at that glory to which God had called him. And yet he disobeyed, and God cursed him 
to be the lowest of the low, the most inglorious, the most hated, the most appalling to man. We see this also in Isaiah 14. Turn to Isaiah 14 with me. Verses 3 through 19. Here, instead of being described in terms of the king of Tyre, Satan is described as the king of Babylon, which, of course, the prophet is truly speaking to the king of Babylon and at the same time speaking about Satan. Verses 3 to 19. When the Lord has given you rest from your pain and turmoil and the hard service with which you were made to serve, in other words, when the Lord brings you back from, from exile, Israel, you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. How the oppressor has ceased, the insolent fury ceased. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of rulers that struck the peoples in wrath with unceasing blows, that ruled the nations in anger with unrelenting persecution. The whole earth is at rest and quiet. They break forth into singing. The cypresses rejoice at you, the cedars of Lebanon, saying, since you were laid low, no woodcutter comes up against us. So the earth rejoices at the death of the king of Babylon. Where is he sent? Verse 9. Sheol beneath is stirred up to meet you when you come. It rouses the shades. The shades are the dead, the, the shadowy spirits. It, it rouses the shades to greet you, all who were leaders of the earth. It raises from their thrones all who were kings of the nation. All of them will answer and say to you, you too have become as weak as we. You have become like us. Your pomp is brought down to Sheol, the sound of your harps. Maggots are laid as a bed beneath you, and worms are your covers. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars or angels of God, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world like a desert and overthrew its cities, who did not let his prisoners go home? All the kings of the nations lie in glory, each in his own tomb. But you are cast out away from your grave, like a loathed branch clothed with the slain, those pierced by the sword who go down to the stones of the pit, like a dead body trampled underfoot. We see one who is said to be fallen from heaven, one who sought to be above the stars of God, the angels, but is brought down to the lowest depths of Sheol itself, and is Instead of ruling over men in glory, he dwells with dead spirits, the spirits of dead men. No glory, just darkness. As we review the history of Satan, it reminds us that angels play, played and play an important part in the larger narrative of the unfolding history of the world and God's plan of redemption. Angels fell first, and angels precipitated man's fall, and just to mention this, but not go into detail about it, this is part of the larger developing theme of the older and the younger brothers in Scripture. Angels are our older brothers in the order of creation, created first, called to serve and help their younger brother, 
but Cain killed Abel, and Ishmael oppressed Isaac, and Esau oppressed Jacob, and Saul oppressed David, and even Israel oppressed the church. But the scriptures say that the greater shall serve the younger. The history of Satan is the history of a fallen angel, a created spirit who should have served man to bring him to glory, but rather sought his own glory and precipitated man's fall. Thirdly, let's consider his dominion. Satan is a fallen cherub. If you think of cherubs as little babies with bows for February 14th, you are very wrong. Satan is a fallen cherub. And in passages like Isaiah 14 and even Ezekiel 28, you see all of time condensed into a short span. You see even the very end and end and end of Satan, which has not yet been, which has not yet fully come to pass. In Genesis 3, when curses are pronounced against Satan and against man, those curses certainly go into effect, but they are not fully poured out completely then and there. And so Satan persists. He lives on just as man lived on after the curse. And while Satan lives, while he, before the return of Jesus Christ, he is referred to, Satan is referred to in, in uh, government terms or in terms of having dominion and ruler, rulership, if rulership is a word. He is a prince with a principality, a king with a kingdom. In what sense? In what sense can we say that Satan has dominion? In several senses. First of all, Revelation 12 speaks of a third of the angels falling with him. And they are consistently described in a way that they follow him and obey him. So we would consider Satan to be prince of the fallen angels or the demons. In that sense, he has dominion. The fallen spirits obey Satan. We don't see demons doing different things with different agendas around the world. It's all one agenda as they obey Satan. He can also be said to be a ruler and have a dominion, dominion with relation to man. Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verse 16, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? If you obey someone consistently and regularly, it's how you live your life, you are their slave. And so man in Genesis, by believing Satan's word and obeying Satan's word, made themselves slaves to Satan. And Satan uses the power of sin, the inclination of man's corrupted nature, to tempt him to sin and to inflame his sin, to increase his sin, to maintain him in sin. So we obey Satan in the sense that he uses our sinful nature, he uses our corrupted nature to continue to make us do what he wants us to do. And we do it gladly, unless God's grace frees us from the dominion of Satan and sin. And think about the terms that God uses in Genesis 3. I will put enmity between your seed and the serpent. If, there's, if God needs to put enmity between you and Satan, that means that previously there was what? Amity. You had friendship with Satan. You had loyalty, a relationship. And God says, I'm going to break that and put uh, enemyship, uh, enmity between you, not friendship between the two of you. So right now we have an, well not right now, but fallen man, man by nature, has amity 
is underneath Satan's dominion. And we see that Satan seeks to protect and preserve this in passages like 2 Corinthians 4, 3-4, which says, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Satan blinds men's minds so that they won't believe. In Matthew 13, 19, the parable of the sower speaks the same thing. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in the heart. He says, these are my people. They believe me. They listen to me. They obey me. So Satan's dominion is to be prince of the fallen angels and to rule men by keeping them under his deceitful influence and tempting power. And therefore, hell and earth are the spheres of his influence and dominion where he and his armies wreak as much havoc on man as they can and where they do everything in their power to assault the church and oppose God and all that is godly. Well, this brings us in the fourth place and finally to your adversary. Your adversary. Peter says in our text, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Satan is your adversary. What does that mean? It's not a particularly difficult concept, but we need to understand it rightly. It's the common word for your opponent in a lawsuit, someone who's opposite of you. And lawsuits are not everyone wins type of arrangements. Lawsuits are not, let's all agree. Lawsuits are, if I win, you lose. And if you win, I lose. The opponent is seeking their side. The opponent is seeking victory for themselves at your expense and to your damage. They are your adversary. Their victory is your defeat. Your defeat is their victory. Their agenda is to overcome you. Or think about it in terms of other competitions such as sports, a wrestling match or a boxing match or a mixed martial arts fight. Wrestlers and boxers and mixed martial artists, they're not in the ring to shake hands and hug. They're not there to chat and catch up and then leave. You only win by defeating the other person. The entire purpose of entering the ring is to overcome and overpower and defeat the other person, your opponent, your adversary. Well, Satan is our adversary. Satan is your adversary, and his goal is your downfall, and he is active. You must understand adversary as an active opponent, someone who is actively seeking to destroy you. And Peter uses not just the term adversary, but he describes him as a prowling lion. Lions hunt. They look. They watch. They seek. They prowl. They're on the move. And they're powerful. What hunts a lion? Lions do not have natural predators. And as a man, without modern technology, if you're faced with a lion, 
do you have a chance? You have absolutely no chance it will overpower you. They'll break your bones, they'll break your neck, and they'll eat you. Do I say this to frighten you? No. I say this to do what Peter does, to tell you to be watchful and sober-minded. You have to know and see that there is an adversary seeking to oppose you and devour you. If, if you're walking on a trail, you need to know, and there, if you're walking on a trail and there are natural predators in that environment, you need to know that so that you can be aware and watch for them. Watch for lions and tigers and bears. If you don't know and you're not watching, you'll be easy prey, easy pickings for something like a prowling lion. Now, you ought not to be frightened, but you should be aware and you should be prepared. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. The scriptures teach us that though Satan is an adversary and though he is a prowling lion, he is resistible. Peter says, resist him. And he's paralleling James chapter 4, which says, resist the devil, and what? He will flee from you. And so 1 Peter 5 is going to teach us, as we continue to study it in subsequent sermons, that though Satan is our adversary, and though Satan is a prowling lion, we are able to stand up to him, we are able to stand against him, we are able to withstand his assaults, and having done all to stand firm, even against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. And why is this possible? Because there's another lion on the road. The lion of the tribe of Judah. And we follow him. And he's not an angel in the flesh, he's God in the flesh. And because he has already subdued Satan, because he has already defeated the devil, because he has already risen from the dead, and because we follow in his footsteps, we can be strong in his power, fighting with his armor and his weapons. And when we do that, can Satan possibly stop us? No, because it's not good versus evil, the eternal struggle. It's God versus wicked creatures. And when we consider the mighty hand of God and the unmighty hand of a fallen angel, there's no comparison. There's no comparison. David has already stepped forward to slay Goliath. He's already dead. His head's already chopped off. When you step into the Colosseum and you have a lion for an opponent, you would tremble and be afraid but if a second lion that was 1,000 times bigger and more stepped into the Colosseum, it would simply stomp on the first lion. The lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered. We see that in Revelation 5. 
John weeps, who will open the seals? The lion of the tribe of Judah has prevailed. We fight with God's power and God's armor and God's weapons for his glory. And when we do that, Satan cannot stop us. We therefore must be firm in our faith. We'll come to that later. But Peter says, being firm in your faith, you must believe that Satan can be resisted. You must believe that God's power can enable you to withstand You must believe that the means and the methods, the armor and the weapons that God has ordained in this fight are more than sufficient to cut the head off of that snake. Brothers and sisters, Jesus sent out his disciples and he gave them authority and power and they reported to him and they said, we cast out demons and we healed and we did these things in your name. And Jesus says, I saw Satan falling from heaven. He says, I saw him defeated because Jesus' disciples, Jesus' people, Fight with Jesus' power. So do not be afraid. Yes, be sober-minded. Yes, be watchful. See that you have an active opponent, your adversary. But be strong and courageous in the Lord. Follow closely to that lion that's walking down the road in front of you. And then when a lion comes from the side to attack, you're close to Jesus. You're close to him, clinging to him and nothing can hurt you or harm you. Do not be afraid of a fallen angel. Resist him in Jesus' name, and you will defeat him in Jesus' name. Now, in the next sermon, my plan is to strongly rely on Thomas Brooks' precious remedies against Satan's devices. Because it's one thing to say, resist him. It's another thing to say, how? What are his methods What are the ways in which he attacks us and how can we overcome them? And so we'll give one sermon to that and then we'll get to Satan's leash and Satan's loss in the sermons that follow it. So for now, we need to understand Satan's nature as a fallen created spirit. We need to understand his history as one who should have helped man to reach glory but dragged man down. We need to understand all that God has done for us in Christ Jesus so that we can resist him He is our adversary, and we need to stay close to Jesus Christ without fear because he is the line of the tribe of Judah, and he has conquered. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, how we thank you that we are called to battle with a captain who has gone ahead of us, who has fought for us, who slays our enemies who is divine and human, truly God and truly man. How we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. How we thank you that our enemy, at most, can afflict us, but cannot defeat us when we are strong in your power. We pray that you would help us to fight by faith, to believe your promises, to obey your commands, to use your means and your methods. Help us, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen.